Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ladies and gentlemen, we gather here today to bid a farewell to the Pittsburgh Penguins 2022-23 season. I was going to say dearly beloved, but I'm pretty sure that's just for weddings. But, you know, I'm not that smart, so I don't know. Regardless, this is episode five of the Pens cast. I think it's episode five. I'm pretty sure. Thank you for tuning in. This is Lucas Wester as usual. And I have a very fun and unique episode ahead for you. I got two people, two of my favorite people, to come on and talk about this past season that we just witnessed. The biggest disappointment in recent memory of Pittsburgh Penguins hockey. And I got two of the best, in my opinion, to come on and talk about it. First, you will hear from my fellow Penguins Radio Network intern, Mason Strawn, who has spent a lot of time one-on-one with me uh, over the past semester, talking at length, ad nauseum, about the Pittsburgh Penguins and the season that they were having, and obviously um, ending in disappointment. We all had a lot of things that we wanted to say, so I'm happy I was able to have him on, and I was able to talk to him. And we kind of cleared some things up in the air. We um, talked about what went wrong, obviously, and what to do next. Because as as it stands right now, the Penguins don't have much of a um, top-level management. They got none. They're all fired. They have a head coach, maybe? We talk about that. Um, The roster, I don't think, is going to look the same as it does as on uh, game 82 against Columbus, it's going to look different. We talk about trying to resign some guys, you know, uh, who should be moved out trade wise, yada, yada. And then once that conversation wraps up, I had a delightful conversation with penguins radio network, uh, host Brian Metzer. And we sat and we discussed for about a half hour, similar things. We talked about, I wanted his opinion on the goaltending situation. What happens there? Uh, Whether, you know, can the Penguins afford to bring back Jason Zucker? And we talk about the development of the young guys. The seasons that Ryan Paling, Drew O'Connor, POJ, even at the end, Alex Nylander, those guys had great seasons. Were they deployed properly? Do they have a future in this organization? I think they do. But we talk about that. So... Coming up here in a second are both of those conversations. First with Mason Strawn, second with Brian Metzer. Quickly, I don't have much more else to say about anything on this episode other than I think this whole GM search is going to happen quicker than people think. I really do. I know a lot of it, and we talk about this later, is contingent on what happens with these other teams, and I don't think enough is being made about that. These other teams that have the managers that we want 
could hang out into the playoffs for a while. The Toronto Maple Leafs have a great team. They, I think, are favored against the, the Lightning. If they were to make it to a second round, they would not be favored against the Boston Bruins, nonetheless. But the other leading candidate for this job, in my opinion, is Eric Tolsky, the assistant GM of the Carolina Hurricanes, alongside Don Waddell. And Carolina, in their first round, plays the New York Islanders. The New York Islanders are going to play them tough. But I do think Carolina gets out of that series, probably. Then in the second round, they face the winner of the Devils-Rangers, which that series is going to be very difficult. So it could be a while before the Penguins have the opportunity to talk to their two leading candidates, at least from the outside looking in, it seems like those are the two leading candidates. But that's where we stand right now. Tonight is playoff hockey, baby. It does suck. The Penguins will not be involved. But there is nothing better than playoff hockey. At the end of this episode, when I'm done talking with Mets and Mason, I will go through my bracket. I just want to make sure we get to the interviews as quick as possible, so I don't want to waste time here at the top of the show doing it. So please enjoy my set my sit down with Mason Strawn and Brian Metzer, and I'll talk to you at the end with some playoff bracket predictions. Let's go. And welcome back to the obituary episode of the Penscast on the 2022-23 Penguin season, where the Penguins missed the playoffs for the first time in 17 years. This time joining the, the show is Mason Strawn, my fellow Penguins Radio Network intern. He has a lot of things going down in the pipeline. Mason, how are you today? You know, we're sad because the Penguins will not be playing some playoff hockey and we will not be, we will be the first radio interns to never experience playoff hockey but besides that you know we're doing pretty good we're all right we're doing all right now and boy did they let us know it that was like (laughs) even when the things were starting to look bad uh, our one supervisor literally said like oh this is uh you guys are going to be the first this sucks it's all you like (laughs) they're they're 100% blaming this on us uh for some reason yeah the Oilers game, that 7-2 to two loss, all I remember is uh, our supervisor walking up to me after they scored, like, the Devin, I think Devin Shore scored his first goal, came up to me, shook my hand, and went, well, it was a great time working with you. <laughs> Too bad we won't get to see you in playoff time. And I was like, all right, well. <laughs> and it all kind of fell down there, to be honest with you. It really did. Um, that was yeah. that seemed like the, um, the ego death of the season, maybe, for lack of a better word, where they just lost all their mojo from there on out. And they gave us some hope throughout the year, where especially after that Minnesota Wild game we were at, they definitely um, seemed to have got some mojo back, but all just to lose to the two worst teams in the NHL, other than your other favorite team, the Anaheim Ducks. They are the worst. Got to throw that one in there. Uh, give me Connor. Give me, Be- give me Bedard. I saw a tweet earlier that was like, if the Ducks change back to the Mighty Ducks logo, just give him Bedard. I was like, please. I just want both of them. Give me both, please. <laughs> he, w- he would look sick in some Mighty Ducks jerseys. Just throwing Absolutely that out there. Absolutely he would. 100%. Absolutely he would. <laughs> now, the, there are some of our, uh, some of our colleagues, some of our, uh, you know, our friends that we made along the way in Penguin Media. Yeah have been pointing the blame at a bunch of different issues for what went wrong this season. What made this season so much worse than any of the others previous people blamed injuries. 
the we didn't have a, a top six, a stable top six for more than like 30 games this year. Some people blamed the bottom six on the uh, forward side because that was a mess. Some people have blamed Tristan Jari and Casey DeSmith as the goaltending. In your perspective, from seeing as many games as you did, because we saw a lot of games this year, what do you think is the biggest reason the Penguins are sitting at home today instead of preparing for a playoff game tonight? The biggest reason at this point, like the way I see it, right? And I've, I've been talking about this with a bunch of other people as well. Um, and the biggest thing at this point was just the disconnect between management and the roster, essentially. Um, what I mean by that is like, if you look at it, Ron Hextall created his own roster, a roster that did not fit one, the way that the Penguins were already built and two, one that coach Sullivan uh, did just not agree with. Um, he said it multiple times throughout the year, obviously that like the, we have the roster that we have. And at the time I didn't really understand it because I thought he was just like complaining about how the team was terrible or like how like Jeff Carter is a literal black hole in the middle of the ice. Um, but the main thing I think that he really meant, and now like I've looked back on it and I realized that there was such a massive disconnect between uh, upper management and the coaching staff that the roster that was put out there did not fit the system that Sullivan has. Like Sully's main point of his game is speed and like the ability of also playing like solid speedy defense and also being able to transition game. Uh, the Penguins this year, we're not based off of that. Mikhail Granlin uh, is a great example of that, where Ron Hextall decided, you know what, a second-round pick for a 31-year-old making $5 million a year, if not more, uh, is definitely a good addition to this team. It is going to be a much-needed addition that is going to help us propel us to the playoffs. That was our big move. Uh, it was not our big move. It was stupid. It was terrible. It was not a good idea. Um, and he decided to go ahead and make that deal, and he didn't fit how Sullivan plays. Granlin doesn't play defense. Yes, he's a bit of a sneakier defenseman, but he doesn't play great defense. He was a playmaker on a pairing that needed a shooter, and we didn't have anything like that until Alex Nylander got the call. And even then, Nylander is solid, but I mm, like it was a very weird thing. But the, the, mainly the big reason is just like, as we saw, Hextall made a roster that didn't fit. And we saw it throughout the entirety of the year, especially whenever we saw the likes of Marino and Matheson both leave, who are both speedy defenders. I, I call Marino speedy. He's like, he's a more fluid skater than I think most realized. Um, and it was just something where we saw it throughout the year that it just did not fit. And then whenever the pieces that we did trade for came in, um, they just didn't pan out very well. Uh, Jeff Petrie, a prime example of that. I had ho high hopes for him uh, coming into this year. He did not produce to the level that anybody expected. Um, and it just costed a lot of things in the long run. But nonetheless, that, that's the big thing that I saw, in my opinion, that really caused all of this. But So we've identified the problem now. Yeah. <laughs> and Friday, the problem was let go. All, Thank goodness. Three of them. Uh, Chris Pryor, assistant general manager, Brian Burke, president of Hockey Ops. And then, of course, general manager, Ron Hextall. So all three of those were gone. Now we have to move on. What yeah. we, we've talked off the mic about this a little bit, but what, <laughs> what do you look for now in a general manager? Since there was such a disconnect between Sullivan and Hextall and the team that Hextall was building. Are you, do you identify a general manager 
that aligns with Mike Sullivan, or do you go more for a general manager that aligns with the Fenway Sports Group, you know, analytics? Because there's kind of a disparity there. And there's something I keep thinking about because everyone's been bringing up uh, Kyle Dubas is that mm-hmm. if you look at the Kyle Dubas scenario that happened whenever he was assistant general manager, they let go of Lamorello, and then he got he came in. He had his inherited head coach for a year in Babcock, and then it didn't work out, and he let him go. <laughs> so. Are you bringing in a general manager to fit in with Sullivan or are you are, are you think, looking like bigger than that and you're just looking for what's best for the organization, which might end up meaning Sullivan's gone in a year? Because that's the, that's my thought as well at this point is it depends on if Fenway wants to keep Sully. In my opinion, I think Sullivan is still a very good head coach. He's one of the best to ever um, coach here in Pittsburgh. One of the top, I should say, not the number one probably, but he's still easily like one of the greatest coaches in Penguins history. I mean, he won you two cups for crying out loud. That's enough proof, obviously, right there. But um, at the same time, in my opinion, it should be something where, like, the Penguins, we've already seen it before as well. There's been reports that the Penguins want to build up their analytics uh, department, which is fair. Um, And I think that's a very good thing to do. I'm a very big uh, advocate for analytics. Uh, People that claim that analytics are stupid are also stupid. Uh, It's none of my business, personally, but with that being said, um, I think the pens need to be, they need to find at least a happy medium uh, between like Fenway's group and being able to, you need to at least find a general manager that is able to communicate properly with their head coach and understand like, Hey, I'm not just going to throw these players at you and tell you to make a roster. I need to understand what I'm looking at and also understand what the coach wants and being able to combine those two. Like that, you need to have a happy medium of the two. And that's very hard and difficult to find a lot of times. Um, obviously, it doesn't always work out. Uh, sometimes you get guys who just make bad moves or are just like, unfortunately, don't mesh well with staff and so on and so forth. But I think it's got to be something where you have to understand that you still have Sully for a couple of years at least. You just signed an extension to him. I doubt they fire him immediately. There's no way. I don't think, I don't think Fenway wants to pay him that much to do that let alone anything else. Um, so I think it's something where if you're the Penguins, you got to look for somebody who's willing to work with your head coach and build with him a roster. It's not just the GM's mentality. You need to understand that you need to have somebody who's going to fit alongside you. You, It's like it's like how Moneyball kind of was where you, know, you have your uh, manager who's like, I'm not going to play these idiots, and then you have to force it. Don't do that. Don't be Billy Bean. This baseball and hockey are two very different things, obviously. But it's one of those things where you have to be able to understand that you got to try and at least find that happy medium of like a guy who can make smart analytical based trades while also being able to talk with Sully and go, Hey, is this someone that you think would fit in your system? And how would you utilize him? And then going from there, um, you obviously don't want Sully being like in charge of everything because we've seen head coaches being GMs has never really worked out that well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also at least want it to be something where you can navigate between the two and be able to like talk and be able to actually create a roster that is going to help the Penguins get back into the playoffs and hopefully get another ring for Crosby and Malkin and Latang before they all go back to the retirement home. Great point. Now, <laughs> now we're gonna we're gonna do a a, a game here. You're going oh to be one of the faceless uh, corporate guys at Fenway Sports Group. 
Oh, Jesus. So you're, you're in charge. You make the decisions around here. This isn't who you think is going to get the job. This is who you would choose. Many names have been thrown out. Like I said, Kyle Dubas, general manager of the Maple Leafs, has been one. Assistant GM and in charge of uh, analytics in Carolina, Eric Tolsky, has been one. Former uh, director of analytics for the Penguins and current director of analytics for the Sabres, Sam Ventura, he's been one. I've heard John Chayka's name brought up. I've heard Stan Bowman, yikes. I've heard his name brought up. <laughs> You're not wrong there. <laughs> um, Mason Strong gets to decide who is the next general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Who does Mason Strong choose? I see in my personal opinion, I've heard a lot of like all, obviously all those different names. Uh, Kyle Dubas seems to be the big one that a lot of people like, but I personally like Eric Tolsky. I, that, of all the names that I've heard and the, the amount of research that I've done, that little that I have, unfortunately, I haven't been able to do as much as I want to. Um, but nonetheless, I like Tolsky the most for a fit in Pittsburgh. Um, I think he definitely he's played a massive part in Carolina has played a massive part in their hockey development scheme as well. And as we've seen, Carolina does a really good job of developing players, uh, which the Penguins really need right now, especially with the likes of keeping Owen Pickering uh, growing and having others in the system who have kind of stuttered trying to get them to grow even further. We saw Wilkes-Barre didn't have a good year this year. They didn't make the Calder Cup. Uh, they were one of the worst teams in their division, unfortunately. Now, don't get me wrong. The Penguins don't exactly have a lot of prospects in their system right now. They've kind of, you know, wasted out that system. But nonetheless, Tolski is somebody who I, I personally think would be the best possible fit to work alongside uh, the likes of Sully. And as well, would probably be someone that I think Fenway would work well with. Um He's, he's worked a lot with, again, he's done a lot with their scouting department. He's done a lot with their player negotiations, trying to get cap compliance, which the Penguins really need right now, um, and just a bunch of other things like that. I think, he, in my opinion, he's the best possible route you could take from a general, like, general manager standpoint. He's probably going to be your best bet at being able to balance everything. The question is, will he mesh well with Sully? and like the other members of coaching. And I think he could, in all honesty. Um, I don't know, 100% no. I don't know him personally. I don't know Sully enough. You know, we just because we got to sit in on interviews with Sully doesn't mean we know him personally by any means necessary. But um, I don't know if they would mesh well or not. I don't know if he'd have the same vision. But from what I've seen and from what how the Hurricanes play, the roster that he helped put together – that's a roster that I think Sully would like. I think it's a roster a lot of Pittsburgh would like to see, like that style. And I think he'd definitely be the best bet. And I honestly think that he's probably the odds on favorite at this moment because yeah. we've heard Dubis's name more yeah. than anyone else. But I still don't think that the Maple Leafs are going to let him walk like that. You know, I think he's see, built a good enough team to build up a little bit of, you know, I, I like, you know, I think he has some pull in that organization. Yeah. I don't think they want to let him I go. think I think you're right, but I have seen reports a lot recently that like he doesn't have the full say in the uh, industry anymore. Puck Empire, which anybody that knows what that is at all, uh, social media site for hockey, uh, made, recently was bringing up reports about how Dubis doesn't have the final say in decision making anymore. And I think it entirely depends on how Toronto does in the playoffs. If Toronto makes it past the first round, Dubis probably keeps his job. 
if they don't make it past the first round, he is going to have his bags thrown out on the street and, pro- street and probably lit on fire like he's back in Vancouver. Um, but, <laughs> it, I mean, at this point, that's just how it is. I don't know um, if he I, – I don't personally think the Penguins should go after him. Um, not that he's a bad GM. I just don't think he would be the best pick. Um and I just I, I like Tolski. I really like Tolski. I think he I think Dubas could stay in Toronto. I don't know if he does. I think there's a lot of teams that'd be willing to go out and get him for the hell of it. But at the same time, yeah, that's just how it that's how I see it at this point. Is just Tolski's probably gonna be he's your best bet. I think you would be the best option for them. I think he is probably numero uno at the moment. I don't hundred percent know if that's true, but Nonetheless, uh, Rob Rossi made a good point with like all of his like his top ten potential candidates. I haven't got to look at the whole article yet, but shout out Rob Rossi, uh, interesting feller. But nonetheless, definitely you can you can say that twice. Um, <laughs> um okay, so let's. I I I I still agree. I think I think Tolski is a good one, and I think an underrated part of it too that people aren't mentioning enough is that. I think a lot of it depends on who, what happens in this first round here, because if Carolina say, say for some reason, Carolina gets eliminated uh, by the Islanders, uh, but Toronto moves on. I think Tolski's definitely the odds on favorite. If it's the other way around, if Toronto gets, gets out in the first round, but Carolina moves on, which I think is way more likely then maybe Dubas moves up on that uh, likelihood list. I don't know, but I could just see that. Yeah, that that's just how it's a very underrated part of all this is people are just like connecting names to the team. I think more than anything, you should be looking at the team's performance and uh, like estimating on that. Okay, uh, you know, Dubis will be out earlier, so they're going to get to talk to him quicker. I think they want to get this done as soon as possible because we're two months out from all, all of this ter- with like the season completely ending. Yeah. And then you got free agency, you got the draft, you have everything. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of movement just because there's a lot of movement upstairs. Doesn't mean there's not going to be a lot of movement down on the ice. We're going to get into that in a second here, but I have a big feeling that based on the um, press conference too, that Kevin Acklin and I forget the guy's name, but he was the Fenway sports group representative at the press conference announcing um, the firings on Friday. Um, They said they want to get this done quick. Like they like they want to be thorough and everything, but they want to get people in there quick because decisions need to be made ASAP. They can they can start making like, you know, like decisions here like right now. So I really think that that's going to be something they're going to look forward to. So everyone who's a Penguin fan should really keep an eye on what's happening with the rest of the teams in the playoffs, because that's going to play a large part in what happens with the Penguins, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, Now we're going to play another game. Mason Strong, you have been selected by the Fenway sports group to be the general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins. <laughs> it's, oh it's, God. Okay. Not Craig Richichar. It's not anyone else. It's, <laughs> it's Mason Strong. So we have a core put together. We have yes. guys under contract. We have Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Jake Gensel, um, for better, or for worse, Brian Rust, Ricard Raquel, <laughs> Jeff Carter, uh, even got uh, Jeff Petrie, Chris Latang, Marcus Pedersen, Yan Ruda, POJ. Yes. Everyone else basically is a free agent. I mean, you have Granlin too, but um, you know, whatever. We we got decisions to make here. Decisions to make. Yeah. You are Mason Strong, general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yes. Let's start with people you want to trade out. People that aren't pending free agents here. People that who you think we uh, they should look to move in this uh, you know in this offseason. My big guys have been Petrie and Granlund. Yeah. 
Who do you think of guys who have term left the Penguins should look to move off of this offseason? I mean, obviously, those are like the two big names. I feel like him and Carter, obviously. But the problem is with those three um, is that they're almost immovable. Not, not, I should rephrase that. Nobody's immovable. However, from an asset standpoint, they're immovable almost. It is very difficult to move players like a Granlin, obviously, like a Carter, um, probably a Petrie as well. You're not going to get much for that. Um, and that's terrible asset management to ship out guys who you gave up so much for um, just to get scraps back. And as much as I would love to like see if you can get rid of Granlin, you know, send him to a send him to a Coyote, send them to a a Ducks. You know, the Ducks need to get off the cap floor. Obviously, I just don't see them being able to get those guys out without having to give up third or higher picks to get back like a fifth. Like it's going to be a lot of salary retention for a guy who is, in all honesty, for like the likes of Granlin and Carter, kind of liabilities on the ice. Carter's only good at faceoffs, and Granlin can pass the puck. That's all they can do. Um, Jeff Petrie is a little different because I mean he can at least power play a quarterback or power play a quarterback quarterback a power play. I can't English today. That's all right though. Um, he can at least quarterback a power play uh, as a second pairing at the least. He's a veteran somewhat stronger offensive side of defenseman. I think he can at least get you a little bit more value wise. However, the other two, it's just not possible. Um, as we're trying to actually get trades to happen though, I don't really know if there's much you can trade out with the penguins right now. I mean, your top six, you want to keep, I feel like there's no way you don't. Uh, the only one I would say out of that crew who I would like even willingly consider maybe trading out would be, maybe rust at best i don't even want to really trade rust because he's such a nice parts nice piece of the locker room and is still like a, a 60 70 points uh a season guy that you don't really want to get rid of him um nobody really else is either guys that are not like tradable or dudes that really aren't going to bring you in much value um it just doesn't seem like something that like the pens are going to make a trade out of um the only person i would really say is casey to smith no offense to casey by any means uh at all but like as a backup goaltender you could maybe get some things for him i think he is not a extremely strong goaltender i also have my feelings about casey um i used to like him a lot those feelings have very much changed over the last couple of years no offense to the guy his play has just been sporadic which is kind of expected of a backup goaltender however um i'm still a big fan of jari and i still want him to come back that's different from the trade part but um at this point, if you're the Penguins, you have guys who you want to trade out, but being able to physically trade out without being terrible asset management or actually being able to make positive out of, it's going to be very difficult. I understand that. I, I do think, though, in terms, I, I agree it is terrible asset management. There's no excuse for that. Um, well, there's, I mean, there's no, not, not excuse. There's no debating that, that it's bad asset yeah. management. My thing is, is, I like to look at every management uh, era in a vacuum as its own thing so if you're looking at it from the ron hextall era yeah those were all bad trades asset management you shouldn't have sent a second round pick for <laughs> granlin you shouldn't have sent matheson and whatever uh for petrie to be fair though in that case i do like paling a lot so i that, do too that trade isn't a complete uh disaster 
But I do hope Halen comes back. I, I hope he comes back next season. We have we've talked we've talked about this before about the sunk cost fallacy. It's a thing in economics, which basically you shouldn't double down on bad investments. It sometimes sometimes you you make a bad investment and you just gotta pull the rug out from underneath it as quick as possible before it turns worse. And I'm afraid that they the if they if they bring someone in that has that mentality of the you know oh it's bad asset management because we gave up this this and that. There's no debating that there was bad asset management. The problem is, is that sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and just be like, oh, that was terrible. And it's going to hurt because yeah. we're giving up this for nothing. But at the same time, I think the most valuable thing for this team, like trade wise, would be cap space, to be perfectly honest with you. And if they can You're move also off, right. if they can move off of Petrie, that's two and a quarter million dollars. Like he's the highest paid defender on the Pittsburgh Penguins, which still shocks me. Um <laughs> Somehow, some way. Yes, somehow he is paid uh, $150,000 more than Chris Letang, uh, which I don't think at any point in his career was he ever better better than Chris Letang. But besides the point, I think that is the most easy to move one, even though it's the highest of the three of Petrie, Granlund, uh, Carter. I think he's going to be the easiest to move just because of the things you mentioned about him, how he can quarterback a power play. And also just like even... I don't, I don't even know if it's a sunk cost fallacy as much because even last season, he was worth Michael Matheson, who we saw this year has been a great player. I, I don't think you're going to get a, like a, you know, get a ton back for him. But I do think there's teams out there, like you mentioned, like in Arizona or in Anaheim or someone like that, that I think is going to need A, people to fill out the NHL roster, B, hit the cap floor. You know, because we saw yeah. this year, that's an issue, especially when you're playing all those young guys. I know, especially with Anaheim, I think uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong because you know better than me, but I think Troy Terry's do a new deal. I think Zegris is do a new deal. Yep. So Drysdale is as well, unfortunately. Yeah, the, the Ducks are in wow. a weird spot where they're going to have to get ready to sign some of their big name players here. Um, they have the cap to do it, but you got to, you're going to have to pay some big price tags. Uh, the big one that's not going to be a big deal is going to be Drysdale just because of the injuries. But yeah. yeah, the Ducks are in a spot where that is going to be a problem. <laughs> and that's definitely possible to get names over to them. And I think other teams are looking at them as well to do that. But And I, th- I think with Arizona, it's going to be a similar thing because like everyone's looked at them as to being like, you know, the vacuum of the league. But at the same time, they, I think, pretty soon are going to need to start resigning some of their guys. So, are they going to be that interested in doing that? I don't. I mean, I mean, I'm sure they would for a price, but I mean, it might be worth it. And another quick one for you. We're running out of time here, but I, I do want to get a couple more things uh, here. Something I just thought of as you were talking, because we're talking about all these immovable contracts, you know, possibly being immovable. Um, would you, this is something I think that happened a few years ago. It was whenever the Red Wings were trying to get rid of that Datsuk contract. They, yeah. they moved back in the draft. I think they had like ninth or 10th overall, something like that. And they swapped with the Coyotes. They moved, I think like the 20th or 25th, something like that. And they gave up the Datsuk contract. So they got rid of all that money and they moved back like 15 spots. At the moment, the pain. The- oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I'm looking at it here. Uh, yeah, so Detroit Wiggins cleared salary cap cha- or salary cap charge of Datsuk by trading him in the 16th pick to the Coyotes. Um, Detroit received the 20th pick and the 53rd pick, so they okay. moved back four spots. So they only moved back four spots. That's actually really good, but it's also a different situation because Datsuk was was able to go on LTIR. They could just do that, but I don't think you're going to be able to do that with our guys. Um, yeah, but would you move back? Let's say from 14th because we're at 14th right now. Would you yeah. move back to? 25th 
if it meant getting rid of one of those contracts? I mean, personal personal opinion, it varies, right? Um, because there are some guys in the middle of this round, in this first round, who I really like. Cal Ritchie is one of those people. If you have Cal Ritchie available um, at like 16, which is unlikely, but if you have someone like him or like a Will Smith available at that point, I'm taking those guys. I love those guys. I think they're great players. I think that's definitely worth it. But at the same time, there's also people further back in the draft because this is a deep class that you can go ahead and just snatch. Like it's not pot. It's not impossible to be able to do that. Um, like you have guys like, for example, Theo Lindstein um, out of the SHL. Somebody the Ducks or not the Ducks, but the Penguins could 100% go ahead and pick up. Uh, he's back in like the 20, like the late 20s area. If you're able to move back and get him. Uh, while also being able to move out a contract like Granlin, go ahead, go right for it. I'm telling you, full speed ahead. Gabriel Peralt, um, brother, I think, of Jacob Peralt, Ducks prospect as well. I really like him. I'm waiting for the Peralt brothers to both hurt me because uh, Jacob's not really panned out the way I wanted him to. But, again, if you can move back and get someone like that and also being able to move a piece like that, go for it, 100%. Uh, it just depends, though, as to who's still available. So it's going to be a very, like, draft-time decision or if whatever rumors you're hearing around the league at the time, if you think uh, someone like a Will Smith or a Cal Ritchie are going to fall to you in like the 16 spot, whatever else, um, take it. Take it as much as you can. But if you also think you can get other players uh, that are worth going back and getting, go for it. It just depends on who they're willing to take. Because there are some picks in this first round that I don't 100% like, but there are a lot of guys in this later draft um, who are definitely worth taking. Obviously, the big prize being Connor Bedard, but like eh, yeah, the Penguins ain't going up the first. We already know that. It's unfortunate, but that's how it is. <laughs> You're right. Um, and we have like a little over six minutes left, so I think we have enough time to get to this quickly. We're not going to get into the entire goaltending discussion because you know where I stand on that's that. I've, I've been on that Swayman train, like you know, yeah. I've been the I've been the conductor. <laughs> Uh, I still don't think it's likely, but I think it's more likely if you get one of those analytic guys, those younger guys who are more willing to you know, pay for younger players instead You're of just wrong. doubling down on the 30-year-old roster like uh, Ron Hextall <laughs> did. But we talked moves we want to make on the trade, and let's talk free agency. Not necessarily other free agents. Let's talk about guys on this roster. The big yes. UFAs, there are, uh, there, there's a good, a good bit of UFAs on this team, but we're going to talk about the big ones. Big ones being Tristan Jari, Brian yeah. Dumoulin, Jason Zucker. Zucker being, I think, the most important of the three. Also, yes. UFA is Danton Heinen, Josh Archibald, um, Dmitry Kolikov. But was he ever really a penguin or was he just one of the <laughs> friends we made along the way? Um, he was one of the friends along. <laughs> and uh, Nick Benino also pending UFA. Yes. Less important, but big three. Zook, Dumo, Jari. What decisions... You're, you're still GM in this situation. We're still role-playing that. Who, who is Mason Strawn picking? Uh, or who, who is Mason Strawn signing in this scenario? I mean, Zucker's a guarantee. You can't not bring back Jason Zucker. I know he is 31 years of age. I don't give a darn diddly squat. Um, he is worth every single penny that you pay him. He is a absolute... Everybody in the locker room loves him. He's an absolute spark plug. And I know that's stuff that like doesn't really play into the analytical side, but he does that so well. He was one of the hit leaders on the team this year. Uh, he scores. And when he does score, he lights up the scoreboard. 
Uh, he didn't have like, obviously he didn't have an incredible season. Like he didn't put up 80 points or anything like that, but he was good enough where you want to bring back somebody like that. He's a good top two pairing. He drives offense. He also is willing to get back and, you know, make hits. He's able to find passes. He's able to score that scoring touch. Hadn't been there the last couple of years. And as we mentioned before, uh, off, off the mics, um, that scoring touch really wasn't there the last couple of years, mostly due to injury, but nonetheless, it's somebody you have to bring him back. Of course, he's going to cost a lot, but you got to bring him back. Um, when it comes to Dumo, I think it really depends on how much he's going to get paid. Because if you if you pay him anything north of like three and a half, it's just not worth it. He was solid at times this year, um, but there were a lot of times where he looked very not good. And that's just how it is, unfortunately. As a defensive defenseman, he had a lot of moments where he looked like an absolute, like he just looked like a cone in the middle of the ice that people could just skate around. And I hate saying that, but it's true. So, and especially when you have Ty Smith coming up, um, I think that's somebody you can let walk possibly though. We'll see about that. Um, Jari, I want to bring back. I think Jari after the season, he's just had, um, obviously we've had this discussion, you know, you're the, you're the conductor of the Swayman train. Uh, I want the Jari to stay. I want the Jari to, Stay put as a penguin. Uh, he wants to stay put from the sounds of it as well. He says he wants to stay in Pittsburgh. Uh, of course, you know, you're always going to say that during media day, uh, which I have a funny story for you as well here after this. But nonetheless, um, I want Jari to stay. I don't think he's going to get anything over two and a half, anything over three mil. I don't think he's going to get paid that. And I think it's worth a shot. The Penguins go ahead and try and snatch him up um, at least for a year, at least at that. He's only 28. He's not even 28 yet. He hasn't even hit his birthday yet. He's still 27. Um, he's somebody that I think you need to take a chance at bringing back. Kuligov and Benino, probably just going to let them walk. Um, those are the big ones. Heinen um, is probably going to walk as well. You can kind of replace him. It's just how it is. Uh, you want to bring back O'Connor. You want to bring back Paling. Those are our RFAs, obviously. But um, Josh Archibald, I think, could be somebody they also bring back for cheap. I liked him a lot. Um, one of those fourth-line spark plugs that I think can definitely help you a little bit he's not going to score you you know 20 goals a season or anything like that but he's enough that even as like a 510 speedy right winger he's going to be able to be enough of a nuisance on that fourth line that you should bring him back but that's how i see it um i think there's some big free agent targets the penguins could go out and try and snatch up um but from a ufa standpoint the big two are Jari and Zucker in my eyes. The rest can probably walk. Those are easily, I don't want to say easily replaceable, but you can replace them. Benino and Kulikov were kind of just along for the ride. Unfortunately for Benino, he's 35. He's probably done. Um, to Kulikov is just kind of there. Uh, I, even as a Ducks fan, I didn't, I thought he was solid with the Ducks at times with the Penguins. He looked like he was still on the Ducks. He forgot how to play defense. Um, <laughs> And that's just how it is. But yeah, from a UFA standpoint, that's just how it looks. Um, I do want them to see if they could, if they could bring back Dumo for less, go for it. Um, but you got to get him for a lot less money than what he's probably going to want. I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm still not sure about the whole Jari thing. I mean, I think a lot of it does depend on who they choose for the GM because I think that's going to be a big True decision. As well. it's, I think it's going to be a longer term decision too. Um, yeah. We have just one minute left because uh, that's what Zoom decided to tell me how much time I have available. <laughs> uh, so I am gonna we're gonna wrap it up there. Mason, thank you for coming on and talking with me about this on this obituary course, obituary episode <laughs> of the Penguin season. Where can people find you on social media? 
Uh, you can find me on all forms of social media. If you want me on my Twitter, come find me at Mr. Underscore Strawn, or the same thing applies to my Instagram. And uh, come watch me talk about sports, because if it's not that, it's usually esports, because my life revolves around people being crazy and doing stuff with balls and pucks and god knows what else but yeah so come find me and come chill out <laughs> all right thank you so much uh, mason thank you sir for having me on and welcome back to this obituary episode of the pens cast season uh penguins obviously missing the playoffs by just one point joining me now is Brian Metzer of the Penguins Radio Network, and he wears many other hats. Uh, Metz, how are you today? I'm good, Lucas. How are you? Thanks for having me on your show. I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. It's honestly, it's a pleasure to uh, have you here. Um, I got a lot of things I want to talk to you about with this season. Obviously, Friday, everything hit the fan. Everything <laughs> came to fruition of uh, what we expected the season. Well, we didn't expect the season end this way, but after the result, we expected these uh, firings and everything, everything to happen. But before we get into what happened on the seventh floor of the arena, let's talk about what happened on the first floor of the season. There's been third period collapses, uh, obviously one point shy of the playoffs just missed. They did miss the tiebreaker as well, but nonetheless, what do you think is the biggest reason for the, the, what's happening today where the Penguins are sitting at home watching everyone else play playoff hockey tonight, but they are not going to be a part of it. What is your number one reason for that? Uh, I would say it was their, <clears throat> excuse me, their inability to defend properly this year combined with some goaltending issues that reared their, you know, ugly heads, you could say, because I think both guys brought some, some ill performances to the table, but ultimately this was probably one of the worst defensive Mike Sullivan teams that we've ever seen. And I'm not going to parade out all the numbers to, to kick them when they're down, but we all know they were given up over three goals per game. Some nights almost pushing four or more, and they were some nights having some scoring woes. So when you're going to allow that many goals, it's making it very difficult on your top six who they lean so heavily on. So for me, I think that was the biggest thing, just their inability to play defense in their own zone specifically, because you and I talked many times in the studio too. They'd have bodies back to try and cover and they'd have four and five people there and they'd stand around and puck watch as a tic-tac-toe played uh, play played out in front of them and a goal was scored. So I think that was the most disappointing aspect for me is just how they defended, how they, they worked in front of their net and, and they left their goaltending out to dry and then they weren't there to make the big save. So it's kind of two things, but I think that one dovetails because of the other one, um, and that is the defensive zone coverage. And do you chalk that up more too? Because the, we, we talked about, especially at the last couple of games, about how many man games were lost on the defensive side of things. Do you chalk it up more to a personnel issue with just who was who was on the ice? Because a lot of times in the second half of the season, they were throwing out like half of an AHL defensive core do you chalk it up more to who they had available the personnel that even if they did have available it was is it more of a like strategy issue where even if they had everyone healthy do you think that they're still in the situation or are they or are they making the playoffs if you know Latang was the entire there the entire season if Pedersen was there down the stretch those guys considering they missed the playoffs by you, you might as well say a point. <laughs> I mean, that that's really what it came down to. So when you look at it that way, I do think that could have made a 
a big enough difference to get them into the playoffs. Uh, their best stretch of hockey this year was obviously when they went through that, what, 14 one and one stretch where they even added a couple more on after it, but they started to dip. But right there along that stretch of play, I thought they were pretty effective. And that largely was a period of time where their blue line was pretty healthy. They had the same six guys playing most of the time. Petrie played his best hockey during that stretch. I know Latang was out towards the end of that stretch with his second stroke. But um, for me, I think if they would have had their regular NHL defensive core in place, they still had defensive issues, but it would have been enough to at least get them into the playoffs. Would it have been enough to make any kind of run? I don't know, but they would have certainly gotten in because a couple of those third period leads that were blown, I think could have been avoided. A couple losses could have been avoided. And then, you know, as I said, you add one or two points to what they had and they end up making the playoffs. So I think that would have did the trick. Gotcha. Um, And throughout this, episode like i said i'm not going to keep you too long we're going to do a couple of if you were this person what would you do games now i know that that's hard to do and everything (laughs) but i want to put you in the position of you are the new general manager that has been hired by fenway sports group okay congrats Matt. i'm very very proud it's awesome you didn't know i was in the running but i i I didn't and (laughs) you weren't on rossi's list so i did i didn't know i didn't see you on on there um but uh so a lot of people were talking about whenever the season was wrapping up. Yeah, Fire Hextall, that was basically a given. But then Berkey also got the boot. Chris Pryor, assistant GM, also got the boot. There were people, especially fans on Twitter, that were talking about Sullivan, whether he should be getting the boot as well. So GM Metz, what would you do with Mike Sullivan if you were the new general manager? I, <clears throat> I don't think that he needs to get a boot per se, but he does need to get a talking to in terms of saying, hey, look, This is the personnel we have. Sometimes you may have to make an adjustment or alter your system to kind of fit the bodies that the Penguins have currently. And when we look at where they were, I think he didn't do that enough this season. And I know that Phil Bork would be quick to point out who uh, he's my assistant GM. I just hired him (laughs) as well. Uh, We did our tweet, the old two niner segment, you know, every game this year. And one of Borky's things was nobody seemed to deal with, or fear any repercussion for a mistake or one of those situations where a scoring chance or a goal was given up right after they scored. We saw it time and time again, where they were on their heels 30 to 40 to a minute after and either give it right back or put your goalie in a bad spot. And he, as he pointed to, if you're not going to make guys, you know, worry in that situation, you're, it's like your kid putting his hand on the stove. If he never gets burned, he will continue to put his hand on the stove over and over again. There was no no poison there. You know what I mean? No no poison pill to make them feel bad. So I think that's what I would do. I'd say, Mike, we love you. You're a great coach. We want you back. However, we need to have maybe you hold these guys a little bit more accountable and maybe put uh, be willing to tweak your system if we don't have speed burning up and down the lineup through, you know, from lines one through four, because I think he still believes it's the 16, 17 penguins. They can go out and play that style. And I don't think they can do that right now. And one quick uh, analogy that I've made, and I can't recall if I said this to you when you were with us, but they are like Superman and Superman two back in the Chris Reeve days. He went and gave his powers up to be with Lois Lane Yet he still went up to the big brute in the diner and said, care to step outside? And the big brute beat him up, you know, kicked his butt and said, you know, you're not Superman anymore. You don't have your powers. And 
that is what the Penguins were. They think they can still ask the New Jersey Devils or teams like that to step outside. And right now, without adjustments, they can't quite do that. And they get embarrassed and they're left bloodied for the first time under Mike Sullivan. And that's what happened to Superman and Superman, too. He saw his blood for the first time and it shocked the heck out of him. That is a fantastic analogy. I think it's a, <laughs> I, I think it's a great point. I think it's literally that's we, we talked about that many times about how the teams specifically I remember mentioning we talked about the devils that they are so much of what the penguins were and that what they think they still are, but they don't have it. They, they do not have it. And the guys I think that had that trait that, you know, like the speed and the youth still are those younger guys that came up and made their debuts and made their impacts for the first time this yep. season, like a paling uh, drew O'Connor POJ sometimes. But I even think, as you were mentioning, that's accountability. He made some mistakes sometimes. And I think just based on necessity, he wasn't, couldn't be held to account because of how few uh, guys they had left over. But I want to talk about those young guys uh, with you for just a second, specifically Paling, Drew O'Connor, Nylander. Uh, do you think those guys, because I think all of them are pending RFAs, if, if I, I believe, um, do they have futures here? Or do you think, I mean, obviously, I think a lot of it depends on the future general manager, but Sullivan was reluctant at the beginning to play a lot of those young guys for any meaningful minutes. Kind of grew on them a little bit here. Do you like what you saw from them this season? And do you think they have a future with this team? I think that they all did open some eyes. Uh, Ryan Paling, for sure, he came over in that deal that brought Jeff Petrie to town. And he looks like a player that he could be a good bottom six forward for the Penguins. And I think what ran him out of Montreal was the fact that he was a first-round draft pick. And when you are a first-round draft pick center in Montreal and you're not going to light it up offensively, that's not going to fly very well there. So now he gets a restart here in Pittsburgh. Sully seemed to like him. He plays the game fast. He just needs to get his hands to catch up to his legs a little bit because we saw that the scoring isn't always there. I think he can grow and continue to build upon what he did this year. And at just 24 years old, I don't think he's going to break the bank. He only made 750000 He is an RFA, as you pointed to. So I think that he will be in the mix. I think Drew O'Connor will certainly be in the mix as well. They liked what they saw from him as a young guy. Took him a little bit to get his feet under him. And I think some of that was cap-related this year until they could finally get him in. So I think those two would definitely be here. Alex Nylander is an interesting uh, situation because he had a great year in the AHL this season. RFA this year, only made 750 this past year, a former first round talent, played a lot of NHL games for the Buffalo Sabres before, you know, kind of bouncing around a little bit and landing in Pittsburgh. So I think that he showed enough that he could be, you know, a depth forward here. It's just a matter of what happens with the rest of this roster. Do they have excess dollars to keep him around? But I think that he was somebody that Sullivan liked. And if nothing else, if he's willing, I think a two-year, I mean, a two-way contract is, is certainly in the offing again for him. If he's willing to be on the farm and be that tweener and then have to fight and earn a job, I think he can do it as well. Now, POJ is probably the most intriguing one. He is signed for next year at $825,000, but he is going to be an RFA in 24-25. So there's some control there. They did like what they saw from him at times this season, still just 23 years old. But I think based on the way they're going to have to rebuild this blue line, he still is an attractive commodity if you can find the right trade out there because he did come up in conversations. But all that said, he can skate very well. He moves the puck well. He has some offensive upside. So 
just if I'm I'm going to be honest with myself and you, I think all four of those players could feasibly find themselves on the Penguins roster next year, especially if they are going to try and trend a little bit younger and start to kind of unload some of the older dead weight that isn't the big three. Agreed. Yeah, I I, I hear you exactly. And I actually um, just thought I I just uh, recorded like a half hour segment with Mason as well for this uh, longer obituary episode I'm making here for the Penguins. Following another legend on your program here. Exactly. It's it's, it's (laughs) a tough one to follow. Tough one to follow. But uh, (laughs) but you're doing great so far. Um, No, but uh, we we talked about that, too. We talked about how the uh, like the youth movement and how we think that they need to infuse a little bit of that and keep those guys, because I think, like I said um, prior, it was kind of hard uh, seeing Mike Sullivan, especially I think it was Jonathan Gruden when he came up and got his debut. I think he played like six minutes or something. Yeah, it was he, ridiculous. Yeah, it, it, it was honestly really uncalled for. If you're like, why even have him up at that point? Um, but it's it like it, as the season came on, Drew O'Connor became more reliable, I think, uh, especially like you mentioned Ryan Paling and everything. So I really hope <laughs> that those guys do stay on. Um, and uh, whoever the GM is, you know, decides to keep them on board. But in terms of some of the older guys, the three big UFAs this year, Tristan Jari, Jason Zucker, I, Brian Dumoulin's kind of on the cusp, but I'll throw him in there too. What would GM Brian Metzer do with those three? Well, you know, if you look at the heartstring angle here, a lot of people would say, oh, if you could get Dumo on a million dollar deal, he's late in his career, you know, just some low money to stay. I just don't know that that's going to happen. He can't make the same amount that he did and he can't make more on this salary cap that the Penguins have. Now, if you could get him on some low ball deal and you know that you could still get some minutes out of him and he's going to be a little healthier potentially, even though he'll be heading into his 32nd year on this ball of dirt we live on. I think that that's something that you could consider, but. I, I wouldn't go out of my way to to offer him 4.1 again or anything above that. Now, the prior management group may have done that because they've proven to make some head-scratching decisions. Now, I, I think that he's probably going to walk. A contender would love to have him, another contender. They would think he'd bring some cup pedigree. So I don't have high hopes about him coming back, even though I won't be surprised if he agrees to less money than he made last year, that they find a way just because Chris Letang spoke in glowing terms about his time playing with them. So keep that in the back of your mind whenever it comes July 1st. Beyond that, I think Tristan Jari did not show me enough to get a long-term deal here. I could not in good conscience give him six over six. It's just not something I can do. If he wants to do a you know a one or two year bridge type deal to to show that he can be healthy and be in the league, great. But for me, it's not even ability so much as availability. He just has been out of the lineup way too much with injuries, and that's hard at 27 years old now to hit your wagon to. And I would say the same with Casey DeSmith, even though he is signed for next year at $1.8 million. So he will probably be the backup to whoever ends up being the number one here in Pittsburgh. If Ron Hextall had stayed, I guarantee you Tristan Jari would have been back. He would have just taken that easy road to sign him. He loves him. He thought he was a great goaltender, and he is. I mean, when he plays well at the top of his game and he's healthy he can be that but I think they are going to have to dip their toe in the trade pool and make a hockey trade to get themselves a goaltender because there's really not enough in free agency unless they truly don't believe they're going to contend next year which based on what we just heard the other day they do so maybe they go after a Cam Talbot or a Freddie Anderson or somebody but Freddie Anderson's not even starting game one for his team going into the playoffs they just said uh you know Antti Ranta is going to be playing game one so that's kind of interesting to look at. Now, um, the other one you asked me about it was Zucker, I believe. Mm-hmm. When when you look at him, 
he feels like the kind of guy that you can win with. I fully believe that he is the, the heart and soul type player that almost has, he doesn't do the same things in the same ways, but there's a little bit of Chris Kunitz there. Just uh, that, that glue guy, that tenacious go to the net, great in the room. The teammates love him and probably even a bit more gregarious because Cooney was kind of quiet. I think Zucker's out front. He's great in the community, great in the locker room. It is just a matter of, you can't go that far above and beyond what he made. He made $5.5 million last year. The last time he had a career or a year like this, that was a career type season was in his last contract year. So I, I don't know that there's enough evidence to show that the consistency is there, but you'd love to have him. So I think there will be negotiation. I think they'd love to keep him, but at the end of the, I guess, negotiation period heading into July one, I don't know that any of us would be super shocked to see, with a new GM, all three of those players walk and move on, even though I think Zucker is somebody that they would love to keep on board at the right price that fits their salary cap structure. Uh, and, you know, he, you got to consider he's also going to be 32 uh, coming up here. He's 31 as we speak. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it, it's kind of funny how, like you mentioned that about how Jason Zucker always turns it on in his contract season. <laughs> he, it just, it's perfect timing just for him to get, yep. uh, honestly, in the, on the open market, he could definitely, I think, get a raise over that 5.5. Oh, I agree. Given his finishing ability, he, he proved this year. And when everyone else was shut off on their finish, like being able to score, he turned it on. And in the in the down the stretch in the time when they needed him the most, which ironically was right before the deadline, and whenever uh, Ron, Ron Hextall wanted to trade him, is when he was performing at his absolute best. <laughs> uh, so it, I just think that's a little ironic there. And going back to the goaltending, you mentioned that you think the best one of like if they need to move off of Jari, they likely would need to go to a trade uh, situation as there's not a ton on the UFA market. Um, I've been beating the Jeremy Swayman drum. I was going to say, time. I know that's your guy. I know. I, I I really want that to happen. I don't know how feasible that is, given that he's so young, and I think he's going to be a real hot commodity. I think if Boston can't get him, I think that there's going to be other teams willing to give up, and they may have the assets to give up more in asset man like asset wise and in money than what the Penguins can offer. But another guy that's been you know talked about is John Gibson. Is there one of those two, or is there someone else that you have your eye on that's around the league, that's under contract, that the Penguins feasibly could afford asset-wise and money-wise to be their starting goaltender next year? I, I really do think those are two names that would come up in conversation. And, hey, who knows? Maybe Sidney Crosby and Jeremy Swayman went into cahoots when they did the commercial for the Winter Club. Classic. There you go. Because if you recall, uh, Swayman was the guy in the commercial. And he didn't get to play the game yeah. um, <laughs> with Sid. So I, I do think that would be an awesome type of acquisition just based on the fact that he's he's young. He'll be controllable. He's an RFA. You'd have to do an offer sheet unless you try and come up with a trade with the Boston Bruins. However, um, it, it's kind of. I mean, these GMs seem to respect one another too much to do offer sheets these days. I guess it would depend on who you bring in, but I do like the idea of doing that. He is um, just 24 years old, only made the 925000 He's probably going to get a raise on that on his next deal, but you don't got to break the bank either. So I think it's something definitely that even if it's a, a, a trade type scenario or a sign and trade, maybe they can do because the Bruins, not much unlike the Penguins, I know they're going to have some money moving into the offseason. But they only have, as we sit here now, um, they spent almost all their cap this season. They are going to have, what is it, $14.75 million to spend with 
five, six, seven, seven UFAs and four RFAs. So they got a lot of work to do with not a lot of money. So I, I do think he's an idea. You bring up John Gibson and it would be a homecoming, you know, Johnny Whitehall coming back to Pittsburgh. <laughs> the biggest problem with that is any any reporter that covered his younger years that knew him before he went out west who was still around in Pittsburgh playing hockey, playing for, you know, junior teams and everything and kind of making a name for himself, say that he loves waking up and looking at the the ocean. Um. And the Allegheny, the Monongahela, mm-hmm. and the Ohio don't offer that sort of aesthetic. However, it is a homecoming. It is an ability to to be here. His family's still here. So I think that there's a chance that, you know, feasibly that would come up in conversation. I think that you it's a lot of money. I think he's making um if I go into the cap situation here, he's still at like six million, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I get six four, yeah. Yeah, he's he's making six point four million and I that that's feasible because that's probably what you would end up paying Tristan Jari if he lived up to the hype. He's only 29 years old. So when I was looking at goaltenders, no one else really jumped off the page at me in terms of wanting to trade for them, but those two guys. So I think that's something to consider. Now, one other option would be a one-year deal. And this is not the name, but this is just a guy like this. You know, he had some pedigree. If you're going to have a good team behind him or in front of him, Maybe someone like Jonathan Quick on a one-year deal to allow you to take some time to come up with a plan for a goalie. Somebody along those lines that you know brings some sort of pedigree to the table could be someone you might consider. However, I don't really think that man, you know, as a player, is the guy. Right. Yeah. And and I, I haven't checked his numbers um, recently. I, I think I know that they've they've had a ton of goaltenders over in Vegas this season. But I know once he got over there, immediately he made a, an impact. He uh, I know he had some good uh, games right after he, the trade from L.A., then from Columbus. So that that's a guy that's an interesting name to look at. Um, but I'm sorry, GM Mets, you are being fired, but you're being promoted up. You are now <laughs> you're now a member of the Fenway Sports Group. Now, this is going to be the question. We're ripping off the, the, the elephant in the room, ripping off the Band-Aid, all of it. There's a lot of names that have been thrown around for that GM spot. We're, we've heard Dubas. We, we've heard Dubas for a while now, but I know it's been a lot more public recently. Eric Tolsky, the assistant GM in Carolina, has been mentioned. Just before we started recording, uh, Brad Tree Living of the, Carol- I'm sorry, of the Calgary Flames was, uh, was mutually parted ways with uh, the Calgary Flames. Um, Stan Bowman was mentioned. I know Rossi made his listicle of uh, the 10 possible uh, names, and there's more names than I've, I've mentioned. But if you're a member of Fenway Sports Group and they seem to have such an emphasis on the analytic side of things, who are what one, who do you think is the best bet to get the GM job? And two, who do you think is the best? like candidate who would you hire for general manager they're two separate questions yeah <clears throat> and it's a tough one it's a tough question because i, I mean for me I, I i'm so torn here because if you could get somebody like kyle dubas which the name has been thrown out if they want analytics he's proven to be somewhat successful with at least acquiring players that can produce I just think you would also need play, people around him to help him build, I guess, a team that is more balanced and, and can defend. And maybe his issues have been you know, tied to goaltending more than anything else as well because they haven't necessarily had a top-tier goalie. So if you could get a guy like that to do that kind of thing, I'd be in, intrigued by it. It, it, it reeks of bringing 
you know, Theo Epstein into the Red Sox when the Fenway group bought that team. That's what mm-hmm. it, it really sounds and, and fits like. And they almost have a similar look. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? It's yeah. like, it, it is just very similar. Um, you know, they, it depends because if I'm looking at what the Penguins are looking to do here, if, and they have been very forward thinking. So maybe they interview some, some female candidates. Maybe they interview people of color. I mean, Kevin Weeks came up in conversation as a GM candidate here when they hired Ron Hextall. I mm-hmm. don't know that I think Kevin Weeks is ready to be a general manager right now in the National Hockey League. He could certainly be in your front office, though. He's a very good hockey guy. He'd need to get his feet wet a little bit. But I, I, I think if I was going to look at somebody, I don't think, and this is not to bring up a Paul Steigerwald thing that he has said hundreds of times, I don't think you should hire someone like Ray Shiro to be your GM. But if you could bring someone like that back into the organization as an advisor, he seemed to do very good in that role later in his career now. He's also still laid the foundation for some very good hockey teams. He did it here moved on and the people won with players he had acquired. Then of course you go to New Jersey. He laid the foundation there along with Tom Fitzgerald who worked for him when they did it. So I think that somebody like that could come up in conversation. I do like the idea. If you want to get a little bit tougher and and build a team, that's a little bit more blue collar of someone like Scott Mellenby. I think his name came up a couple times in the past, just when kicking that around Uh, the senior advisor for the blues. Now I know he was on the Rossi list, but that's somebody that just, he's been around the game. I think he is shown an ability to identify good prospect players and, and help them grow in an organization. He was involved with that team when they got some of the nice young players that they have. So I, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see, a, a collective hired with some figurehead. So when I say that, I just threw a couple names at you. I don't know who I would actually select, but I do feel like they will probably find a way to have a good group featuring a diverse uh, segment of hockey populace behind one figurehead, be it a Kyle Dubas or somebody like that, who then can draw upon the experience and scouting abilities of that group to build a more diverse type of lineup. So it's not just all finesse. It's not just all speed. It's not just all skill, but you get that little bit of, uh, uh, I guess, a little bit of that jam and grind into the mix again, because the league has shown that it could be trending in that direction. And you have to have somebody that's not going to just be so locked and loaded on speed and skill that you still go out and identify a blue collar player or two that could supplement and or enhance your lineup in the bottom six. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at the teams that have won the Stanley cup over the past few years, Colorado, and then the two years prior Tampa Bay, that's the perfect mix of that where they have yes. the skill finesse guys who uh, I, I don't have all of their analytics in front of me, but I'm sure like look really good. And then you also have those grimy guys. You have Patrick Maroon, those type of guys mm-hmm. that really seal the deal, especially come April 17th. Like this is, this is on, from this day forward. These are, that's the time that guys like Patrick Maroon really step up and prove their value to a team. So, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Plus, Lucas, I'd like to know exactly what Mary Lemieux's involvement is going to be. They met, they went out of their way to talk about it in the press conference. So I'm not saying Mario would want to be a full-time GM, but maybe he becomes more of a senior advisor in title as well. And and they utilize his knowledge and, and ability a little bit more to no matter who they end up hiring. Just we've seen so many players of that era thrive 
mm-hmm. in the roles, Joe Sackick, Steve Eiserman, Bill Guerin now. I mean, they've all done a really nice job when they've gotten the opportunity to be general managers. And even you can make a case, even Chris Drury uh, with the Rangers, he's done a nice job. So they're, they're, it's not out of the question to think of these players getting involved. And I think Mario played a little bit of a role in identifying and helping personnel movement a little bit when he was the pro, you know, the, the, um, the owner before they, they made this deal with Fenway. Gotcha. Yeah. I, that was actually my follow-up was what was his involvement necessarily uh, whenever he was in charge. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that he had like uh player personnel, like in, I mean, it makes sense here. You on the team, but I, I wasn't, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't really like play a hand, but I think he would give his advice, you know, gotcha. and, and, and it wasn't like he was saying, go get this guy or go get that guy. But I think that, there was an open line of communication and there were times over the years where things weren't going well for one reason or another. And all of a sudden, Mario Lemieux would be at practice. Ah. And, and that, that didn't happen a lot in recent years, but there were times, you know, 10 years ago or like it, once Sid was here and, and, and they had this group. And once Mario had gone into retirement, you know, five years after that, sometimes it'd be like, oh, okay, they're in a little bit of a funk uh, and you'd see Mario pop up at the practice rink and maybe he was just talking to the guys. Maybe he was just talking to whoever, but he, his presence was around. And I think that that resonated with everybody involved. And if they wanted his advice, he would give it. And I think sometimes maybe even a little bit unsolicited, he probably just said, Hey, maybe we should approach it this way, or maybe we should look at a player like this or like that. And, uh, not necessarily throw a name out, but just, you know, just kind of give his input. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I haven't heard that uh, idea be brought up as having him as an advisor. That, that's really interesting. Thanks for bringing that up. Sure. Um, so we've just just about a minute left. Uh, for well, obviously, thank you for coming on, Mets. It's uh, it's a pleasure having you. Uh, thank you for giving uh, giving me your time here on this uh, Monday. Where tonight, I'm sure we'll all be watching some good old classic playoff hockey. Unfortunately, without our team there. But um, yeah, nonetheless, thank you so much for coming on, everyone. Uh, if you don't already, follow him on Twitter at Brian underscore Metzer. Um, do you guys have any more uh, Penguins Live or anything um, coming up, or is or, or are you guys done with the season now? No, we're pretty much done. We did our final Penguins Live weekly on Saturday morning uh, this past Saturday, and I believe there, there might be a podcast link floating around on the Penguins Live Twitter. We will have ongoing episodes of the Hockey Happy Hour that I'm doing with Josh Yohe and Hunter Hodes on ESPN Radio 970 that airs Fridays at 5 p.m. And that also supposedly is mainly going to be a podcast, but I haven't seen links to that out in the world yet. We've done probably five shows or six shows, and I think once they aired at 5 on a Friday, they've just kind of gone off to a corner and died somewhere, but eventually you'll be able to listen to that. Awesome. Uh, Everyone give that a listen. And Mets, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Lucas. Appreciate you having me. Take care. Enjoy the summer. I'm sure we'll be talking soon, though. You too. Thanks, Matt. Hope you enjoyed those. I know I had fun doing it. Again, thank you to Brian Metzer and Mason Strawn for tagging along for some good old-fashioned season-in-review obituary-type stuff. Season is dead now. It is over. But not for 16 teams. They still got some hockey to be played, and I want to quickly, hopefully not to take up too much of your time, since tonight the games start, I don't want to wait to do this, we're going to do some brackets, baby, and I'm going to start out west. First series, the Central Division winning Colorado Avalanche, the reigning Stanley Cup champions, against the 
Seattle Kraken, the top wildcard team, in their first playoff ever. They will play their first playoff game, I believe, tomorrow. I don't think it's tonight. I believe it's tomorrow. Um, nonetheless, this is one of those weird ones because both of those teams had very good regular seasons. It took Colorado a while to get going, but they uh, once they got going, they leapfrogged everybody and got to the top of the Central. They barely, like For a while there, they weren't even in a playoff spot. That goes to show you how well they played down the stretch. And Seattle, on the other hand, had a breakout season. They their their uh, shooting percentage was insane all year. I do think it's a little unsustainable. It's very much 2017 Vegas Golden Knight vibes, but they have a good team. I don't trust their goaltending. It is the battle of Andre Burakovsky, who ironically will miss his first. Uh, I believe he's going to miss the first two games or one game. I, I know he's going to miss some time with an injury. It's the battle of Philip Grubauer, the former you know. Uh, goaltender of the Colorado Avalanche. There's a lot there. He was uh, obviously the goaltender before Kemper came and they won the cup. Now it's going to be the Georgiev, um, Grubauer, the battle of the G's, the goalies, the Grubauer, and the Georgiev. Um, It's going to be a good series. I do have Colorado winning this, though. I don't think it should be particularly difficult unless they get into unless they can sustain that shooting percentage. And Grubauer is going to need to be really good. He's going to need to be really good. Colorado does have, like I said, some injuries. Burakovsky is going to miss some time. Landis Klug is out for the entire playoffs. And here everyone thought that they were just resting him until the playoffs. No, he's done. He's not playing this year at all. That's a big loss for them. That's their captain. They're going to be without two, their two best left wingers, in my opinion, in Landis Klug and Burakovsky. And so Seattle could feasibly win this. A lot of things we need to go right, particularly in net. But I do have Colorado winning in six. That's my official bracket prediction. In the other matchup between Central Division teams, I got Dallas versus Minnesota. I picked Dallas in seven games. It's going to be a tough one. It's going to be a really tight series. I have been low on Minnesota all year. I don't think they are particularly a fantastic team i think they do have scoring issues they solved some of that when without kaprizov whenever he left he, they still were able to score and that kind of reassured me a little bit still not completely sold i think dallas i think they're I, I think dallas is one of the best built and well-rounded teams in in the league and i think they have a good shot at going all the way here but minnesota does have one of those playoffy type field teams you know very tough they're very hard to play against. They're going to be physical. They're going to be going at the younger forwards on this team and you know annoying the crap out of them, throwing them around. Ryan Reeves, Marcus Foligno, they're, all, they're going to be throwing around Jason Robertson, Rube Hintz. It's going to be a t- really tough series. I think it's going to be really tight because of it, but I do give the edge to Dallas. Goaltending-wise, I think it's a lot closer than people think. I think Philip Gustafson's really good. I think Jake Ott- Ottinger is awesome. It's going to be tight. It might be one of the closest series uh, this first round, in my opinion, but I do give the edge to Dallas, and that second round will be Colorado-Dallas as I have it right now. The other matchup in the first round of the West, the uh, over on the Pacific side, you got the number one seeded in the Pacific, in the Pacific Vegas Golden Knights facing off against the second wildcard Winnipeg Jets, a matchup of the 2017-18 
uh, Western Conference Final, where Vegas went to the Cup Final in their first year. They beat Winnipeg in five games, but they're Winnipeg kind of looks similar to that team uh, that they had back then. But Vegas has basically completely reconstructed the team, other than Braden McNabb, Jonathan Marcheseau, Ry- uh, Riley Sheehan, uh, William Will- oh, excuse me, William Carlson. Um, but other than that, it's basically an entirely different Vegas team. Goaltending is going to be a huge factor again in this one. You have Connor Hellebuck, one of the best goaltenders in the world, against we don't really know. I I, I believe the first uh, game is going to Laurent Brassois, ironically the former Winnipeg Jet. But like, there's five goalies in that uh, Golden Knight locker room. Um, I know Thompson's still out, but he was an All Star this year. If he, they can get him back at some point. I don't know what the timetable is on him. They've kept that pretty close to the chest. If they can get him back. It's a little more even. Robin Leonard's been out all year, and then he's also had some off-the-ice issues, so I don't expect him back at all. You have Jonathan Quick. You have, I think Aiden Hill is still hurt, I think. Jonathan Quick, Laurent Brassois, uh, Logan Thompson, if you can get him back. I have no idea. It, it's going to be really tough for goaltending on the Vegas side. Uh, on the other side, Winnipeg, their best asset is their goaltender. I give the edge to Vegas just because I think in front of the goaltender, they're so much better than what Winnipeg has to offer. So, But Josh Morrissey had a great season. Uh, some of the forwards on the front end, especially Mark Shively, had great years. I still think, well, you know, overall, there's on the skater side of things, I think Vegas has a better, more talented team. But I'm not counting the Winnipeg Jets out. I do give them six games. But I do have Vegas moving on to the second round. The last first round matchup in the West is Edmonton, LA. Another really good series, another matchup of last year's playoffs. And there's obviously going to be some animosity here, especially with uh, Mikey Anderson, who I believe is the culprit of the Leon Dreisaitl injury last year. I give this one to Edmonton. I'm not... 100% 100% confident on it. I do. I think both of these teams have their warts in defense, uh, not on defense, on in goal. But Corpusalo has been well. He, he's been stable. Uh, Stuart Skinner had a great second half. He was an all star, uh, too, I believe. But he had a really good second half. I still haven't seen him in playoff hockey. So I don't know. I don't know how he's going to perform. They cannot dress Jack Campbell. Although this, is, I mean, they can dress him. He's going to be on the on the bench, um, but this isn't kind of the battle of Jack Campbell because Campbell was a king there for a little bit. Um, what else is there to say? This is going to be the Connor McDavid Leon Drysital show. As long as those two can stay healthy and put up similar numbers to what they did in the regular season or last playoff, last playoff those two were on a unbelievable heater. I think Edmonton on that alone is going to win this series. LA has a really good team. I think they have potential. They could they could upset the, the Oilers. But ultimately, I think Edmonton is uh I think Edmonton's going to win. I think McDavid's going to will them to a series victory. So the second round series I have on the west side are Colorado Dallas and then Vegas Edmonton. The first and second seeds in both divisions I have moving on. On the east side in round 1. Boston Florida Florida Panthers. Um, Boston's going to win the series. That is, there's a storyline here with it being the battle of the current President's Trophy winners and the and last year's President's Trophy winners. But that team was so different than the team that Florida has now. And 
Alex Lyon has been on a heater. He could steal the show, but you're against the best team ever. That's what this Boston Bruins team is, the best team ever. Goaltending, if one of their goalies goes down on the Boston side, you still have a top 10 goalie in the league. Legitimately, I'm that high on Jeremy Swayman that even if something happens to Allmark, Boston will be fine on that on that end. Boston should win this. It shouldn't be hard. Unless the only way Florida wins this is if uh, Alex Lyon goes on, stays on a heater, and uh, is even better than he has been. That's the way Florida wins. But I don't see it happening. I have Boston moving on. Round one, <clears throat> but the other Atlantic uh, matchup between two and three in the division: Toronto Maple Leafs and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Everyone is counting the Tampa Bay Lightning out, and man, I can't do it with good conscience. I can't do it. Tampa Bay Lightning are looking for their fourth consecutive berth into the Stanley Cup Final. Their fourth. I don't think they're going to do it, but I do think they're good enough to take on the Leafs. The Leafs have the experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tampa, their players turn on to a different level when the playoffs begin. It's I, I cannot count the Tampa Bay Lightning out this early, especially against a team that has accomplished so little like the Toronto Maple Leafs have. I know the regular season, Toronto's looked way better than Tampa Bay. Well, guess what? That ended. Tonight, it's different. Tonight, it's playoffs. Tampa Bay is a playoff team. They're built for the playoffs, up and down the lineup. Their best players perform really good in the playoffs. Their worst players perform amazing in the playoffs. Patrick Maroon is a playoff player. He's not the only one. They have Ross Colton. They have so many guys down there, lower in the lineup, that just show up for the playoffs. That's why I have Tampa winning in seven. It's going to be a tight series. Uh, I could easily see Toronto winning this. Tampa, some of the gripes against them are valid. They are tired. They've played a lot of hockey recently. Uh, Over the last three years, they got to be just beat with how much that they've played. But I still am giving them at least this round. So the uh, second round, I have Boston versus Tampa. But we got two more matchups here. This is the Metro uh, matchups down here at the bottom of the East. Metro one against wildcard one. You got Carolina and the New York Islanders. They play similar styles, I think. Um, Whereas I think there's going to be not a ton of scoring. They don't rely as much on their top end uh, forwards to score. As much as they do, it's more of a full lineup. They roll all four lines at you, and they are very good in their own end. And um, I think Sorokin is the best goalie in this series. Carolina has the quantity of goalies that you need in case there's some injuries, which if you're a Penguins fan, we saw that last year with Louis Domingue having to play. So even if something were to happen to Antti Ranta, who is starting game one, who is injury-prone, or uh, backup Freddie Anderson, again, who is injury-prone, at the third uh, goalie spot, you have Pyotr Kachekov, who you are totally comfortable with throwing into a playoff game, because I believe they did it last year. I have Carolina winning this in six. They are a much deeper team than the New York Islanders. I don't see the Islanders, excuse me, being able to hold up that well. So that is why I give the Carolina Hurricanes the pass into the second round. The last first-round series, Metro 2 versus Metro 3, the New, Jer- the New Jersey Devils against the New York Rangers. Going to be a, not a slaughter, it's going to be murderer's row, that series. It is going to be unbelievable. It's going to be so much talent on the ice. The New York Rangers have assembled 
honestly the Avengers of uh, forward groups. And to boot, they have one of the best physical players in the league, especially come playoff time, and Jacob Truba on the back end. Adam Fox is a top two defender in this league, no question. New Jersey is very fast. I like them. I like the roster they have. I like the what they've built. I just think their inexperience is going to get the best of them. Not that the Rangers have a ton of more experience because they just got out of a rebuild like two years ago. So that whole story, I think, is getting beat to death a little bit. But they did make it to the third round, so I do want to give them that credit. New Jersey is just so young. And also, goaltending matters a ton, in my opinion. Igor Shesterkin, who had a you know a little bit of a uh, worse season this year than he did last year, um, he's still light years better than Vitek Vanacek uh, on, on like a regular day. So I think they have the advantage there. They have the experience angle. There's just not a ton of advantages I think that the Devils have. So I'm giving the edge to the Rangers. In my last second round matchup, I have the Carolina Hurricanes and the New York Rangers. So my final eight, Colorado, Dallas, Vegas, Edmonton, Boston, Tampa, Carolina, and the New York Rangers. Let's go back to the West, huh? Colorado, Dallas. Um, This is going to be a tough matchup, but I think the experience alone uh, carries Colorado. Maybe by then they have a better, a fuller, more full bill of health, especially with Barkovsky and anyone else who might be out by that point. Um, and Dallas, like I said, is going to get, get so beat up in that Minnesota series. I think that they're going to be missing some guys at this point. So I'm giving Colorado the pass. I have them moving on to the Western Conference final. And between Vegas and Edmonton, I have Edmonton beating out Vegas and moving on to play Colorado in the Western Conference final. I'm very high on the Edmonton Oilers. Um, and there's no one, it's going to be really good that matchup if it does happen. You have uh, McDavid and Eichel in the playoffs. That's going to be crazy. My, the storyline there is awesome. But ultimately, I think. They're pretty even teams, except for the at the top end. I think the top end puts Edmonton over the hump. Defensively, I trust Vegas's defense a lot more, but the discrepancy in McDavid and Leon versus Eichel and whoever else they have on that top line with with him at that point is too great to ignore. So I have my Western Conference final: the Colorado Avalanche and the Edmonton Oilers. Going back to the East, Boston Tampa. I have the Boston Bruins winning. Um, I'm, I, I shouldn't even have to explain myself for why. They're that good. Moving on. Um, Carolina with the Rangers, it's going to be a tough series. And I could see this one going either way. I give the edge to the New York Rangers. At this point, I think goaltending is just what matters more uh, when you get down deeper into the playoffs. And I, like I said, they do have the quantity, but I trust the talent of Shesterkin to rob the not as high-powered offense of the Carolina Hurricanes. I think the the Rangers also having uh, guys who have playoff uh, experience together. Underratedly, Panarin Kane. They got chemistry there. They've done great in the playoffs together before. So I give the Rangers that, and I have a final four that I think uh, the NHL would you know salivate over. On the east side, Boston and the New York Rangers. On the west side, Colorado, Edmonton. Starting with the west, I give the edge to the Edmonton Oilers just because Connor McDavid. It's going to be great, that series, 
a McDavid McKinnon final on the West again is going to be insane. It's a rematch of last year's. I really like both of these teams, but the McDavid we've seen this year has just been on another level. McKinnon had a really good year. He got a hundred points in like 60 games. If he had played an entire 82 game season at the pace, I believe he would have been second in league scoring. I just, I like McDavid that much more. Um, and honestly, the discrepancy in goaltending uh, between Georgiev and Stewart, I don't think is, you know, huge. I give the edge to the Edmonton Oilers, but I could be forgetting about the Kale McCarr factor, you know? I haven't mentioned him very much in this playoff uh, preview. I could be way off there. And the defense, which Colorado has a lot better of, could make that much of a difference and move them into the final. But I'm sticking to my guns. I have the Edmonton Oilers in the Stanley Cup final in the West. It's just McDavid's time. On the East, I give it to Boston over the New York Rangers. Um, Just, yeah, I do. (laughs) Do I have to explain myself? Uh, They're that good. The Rangers are good, but they're not Boston good. So we get the battle of Peter Shirelli in the Stanley Cup final, the Boston Bruins and the Edmonton Oilers. And once again, it's gonna it's gonna be unstoppable force and movable object territory, the Edmonton Oilers and the Boston Bruins. You have Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisidel against everybody on the Boston Bruins. Um I give it to Boston. I think the Boston Bruins are gonna be your Stanley Cup final uh champions, Stanley Cup champions in the twenty twenty three season. It's just that hard. It's going to be that hard for any team to beat them. Uh, on the bracket challenge, you can, for the tiebreaker, if you get the, everything right, is how many total goals are going to be scored in the final. I think it's going to be a high-scoring one. I could put 41. Because, uh, yeah, like obviously Boston's great and everything, but Connor McDavid is not going to make it easy on the Boston Bruins at all. He's going, him and the rest of that team, I want to give the other teams, the other players on that team credit. Hyman had a great year. Nugent Hopkins had a great year. Dreisaitl obviously had a great year. Um, You know, it's going to be really, they're going to make it difficult on Boston, but ultimately in the battle of Peter Shirelli, the Boston Bruins are my team to win the Stanley Cup final. That's not what I want to happen. I don't like Boston sports teams. It's just what I think is going to happen. So that's how we have it. The Boston Bruins over the Edmonton Oilers. That is my bracket. I'll post it on my Instagram and Twitter to, uh, well, the Pens cast, uh, Pens underscore cast Instagram and Twitter too, so you can see the visual of it. But that's what I'm at right now. Now, I know this was a longer episode, so if you hung around, I thank you. Uh, please, like I said, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pens underscore cast. Follow me on both of those as well at Lucas Wester. Thank you for listening. You can listen anywhere. You can listen on Spotify if you want, or Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Podcasts, music, whatever. Um, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, anywhere really you can find podcasts, you can find me. Thank you for listening. I know it's a long one. Thanks for hanging out, and I'll see you next time.